This is it, the final episode for this year, and by the time we finish up at the end of it, we'll know if our foraged self-sufficient ale is a success or not. It's been a challenging year, as it has for almost everybody, but we're on the home straight. I'm Ben Richards, and this is Growing Beer. It's a very chilly and cold evening in early December, but I am, once again, sat next to the fireplace back at home. As with the end of the first series, I'm just a day or two ahead of the release of this episode now, and over the next 20 or 30 minutes, we'll go through the final steps to, hopefully, be able to take a taste of the final brew. So, why am I sat here again? Well, I've spent a lot of time here in the past month, either fermenting or trying to fire pottery, more on that in a minute, it just feels like the right place to make this episode. It's been a long year, and one with many unexpected twists and turns, but we've all just about kept going, and that includes this, the second series of the podcast. It's not gone to plan, and I've had to change bits here and there, or push a couple of interviews to 2021, but we're on the last episode for a while. And, whilst I'm glad to see December, I was even happier to see my little pile of raw ingredients that have been gradually collected over the year. You'll remember from the last episode that we've got the dried foraged herbs, the dried yeast, local honey and the wild and grown barley all ready for this week's activities. With this combination we're going to be making a braggart, but there's still a little bit of work to do before brew day. The last couple of steps for the ingredients were to decide which herbs I was going to include from those gathered and, crucially, malt my barley. Now you heard Merrin and Graham talk about this before. Malting is the process by which we get the barley grains to start growing, generate the enzymes needed to unlock those sugars we'll need for brewing, and then dry them out in a kiln until we're ready to use them. From our perspective, this effectively means setting up a cycle of steeping or soaking the grains for about 6-8 to eight hours, then draining and letting them sit for another 8-12 to 12 hours. Now this cycle is repeated, usually until you've gone through the steep and drain about 3 times, taking roughly 2 days. This effectively lets the grain take on water and start sprouting or chitting. That's when the tiny white rootlets start to appear. Once this happens, we turn out the grains and let them sit for between three and five days, regularly turning them over until those roots have really started to grow and the shoot inside the grain has almost worked its way up through the other end. Now by this time, the grain should be squidgier, the sugars are starting to convert and the plant will have made lots of enzymes ready for the final conversion on brew day. So, <laughs> I've thoroughly annoyed Kerry by taking over the dining room for the past five days as I've had our barley grain steeping, drying and growing in large trays on the table. The reason that she's not exactly impressed is that the temperature needed for all of these stages is roughly 15 degrees centigrade. Obviously, that's colder than room temperature, but also it's warmer than it is outdoors in December in England which means that I've turned off the radiator in there, opened the window and shut the door, effectively sealing off a significant part of the house for the best part of a week. I think he wouldn't mind so much if we had sacks and sacks of barley, but that's not quite how it worked out. If you remember, I grew the barley as a backup in case I couldn't find any wild stuff. So, after harvest, we've got just over three kilos, which is plenty for this year's project. The slightly less plentiful amount, though, is that wild foraged wall barley. After about roughly 7-8 to eight hours of harvesting, and then the 10 hours of separating the grain from the ears by hand, we've got a grand total of 59 grams, and that is after it's been soaked. 
It is, however, malting in just the same way as the barley that I grew, so I'll be using it on brew day in our rather special little braggart. I have to say though, it's quite a lot of work malting, but it's been pretty cool watching the grains grow. What I wasn't expecting was the smell. I'd read that if your barley is malting as expected, we get a grass or a cucumber aroma. And when turning the grains over every day to stop the roots getting all matted and to ensure even growth, the smell was amazing. It was like somebody had been juicing cucumber. And everything that has happened to the grown barley has also happened to the forage grains too. I mean, they're a lot smaller, but they are malting in just the same way. So it looks like you can brew using wild foraged barley in the UK. I suppose the next obvious question is, should you? Well, probably not, unless you have an awful lot of time on your hands. I think we've proved that you're much better off growing a modern variety in an organic way instead. Anyway, after your barley has begun growing, the final steps before you can brew with it are usually to dry it out and then crush it. The kilning heats and kills the grain so it remains ready until you want to use it at some point in the future, whilst the crushing breaks open the grain so the sugars are exposed. So. I started planning how I'm going to build a small kiln or wood fuel dryer in my garden, researched how primitive kilning would have happened and was just about to start construction when it hit me. We may not actually need to kiln. As we're only making one batch, we don't need to preserve the grain for future brewing. If we get the timing right, I think we can brew as soon as the grain has sprouted or is, technically speaking, fully modified. It's very rarely done like this with the malt being called green malt, but it is a thing. No need to use up time, fuel and equipment on a stage that may not actually be necessary. Now, before you start asking why don't we use green malt a lot more then, there are some trade-offs. Yes, this saves time and energy and reduces the chance of me ruining my barley or <laughs> setting fire to half my garden due to a crudely made kiln, but it also means that I won't get any of the flavours that are produced through kilning. Everything from light, bready sweetness to toffee, caramel, and even onto chocolate, coffee, and those stronger roasted, toasted flavours. They come from the kilning process, and we won't have that. So our braggart will be very light. It's also much easier to knock off all those little rootlets that have grown when the grain is dried, as well as being easier to crush. Instead, I'll have to rub those roots off myself before crushing the malt with a pestle and mortar. Now, for two or three kilos, it's not too much of a problem, but obviously to do it for a bigger brew would take a lot of time. So that's the barley malted and ready to go. Next up then, the equipment. I've decided for this brew that I'm going to try to just use brewing vessels that I've also made myself from, well, local resources, I suppose. This means I need something to mash my barley in, and then something to ferment it in. People do already mash, or heat up their water and barley together, in handmade mash tuns in places like Scandinavia. These are called kuerna, and are made using large pieces of wood, effectively acting as a you know, giant bowls or troughs. I'm going to try and do this, albeit on a smaller scale. So, I took a walk around a friend's farm not too far down the road from us, as he said he had taken down an oak tree, and I was welcome to have a log if I can find one. So, perfect. I found the tree, found a good-sized log, and then spent 40 minutes trying to roll it back down from the woods up at the top of their farm, because it turns out oak is really heavy. If you've ever seen The World's Strongest Man on TV, it was a bit like one of those, but really, really slow and pathetic. Despite my shocking lack of upper body strength, though, I got it home and set to work on it, stripping the bark and hollowing it out with a handheld adsaw, sort of small curved axe. I've chipped away at it for a few hours, and I think I've got a few litres of capacity in there now. 
It's not a lot, but it should be enough to see if it will work or not. And that leaves me with the fermentation vessel. Following what Graham had said previously about Neolithic grooved ware pots, I thought I would see if I can make one. So I dug out a few kilos of soil and mud from the ground, which around here tends to be fairly heavy and claggy, and then I mixed that into a bucket of water. Next, I set up an old sheet as a sack and poured the clay-saturated water into the sheet where, over the next day or so, it slowly drained and dried to leave me with a sloppy clay in the bottom. I did this about five or six times uh, over the next week until I had enough to fill a couple of deep trays, which I left by the fire to dry further until, about ten days later, I had something that I could work with and mould into a simple pot with a loose-fitting lid. Now, after another week of drying by the fire, it was then time to fire it, so it would be able to hold my fermenting ale. Now, if I didn't do this, it's highly likely that my pot would start to soften once again when it got wet, so I had to try and fire it so the clay permanently hardens and becomes, well, more like ceramic. Over the course of an hour, I gradually put it closer and closer to the fire, then into the log burner, then rotated as I increased the heat, gradually building the flames so if there was any moisture left in the clay, this should be driven off. After an hour and a half, it had been in the fire itself for about 10 or 15 minutes and, exceptionally proud of my little pot, I very nearly gave it a name. If I'm honest though, looking back, I'm glad I didn't, as I think the upcoming heartbreak would have been too much to take. As the fire was slowly building around the little guy, I suspect I paid the price for my poor potting skills and for failing to get all of the tiny air pockets out of the clay as I sculpted him. Anybody with a basic grasp of physics can probably predict what happened next. Just as the temperature had built up and all was looking good, I started to relax a bit and just watching the fire when, with perfect timing, his little rounded face exploded out across the flames, leaving pieces of my once beautiful pot scattered on the hearth. Three weeks of work gone and not enough time to try again before our now malting barley needs to be brewed. It's a shame, it's a little gutting and if I had more time and the ability to get out and meet people who knew what they're doing, I'm sure I would have done it differently. But to put it into perspective though, if the worst thing to happen to me during the second national lockdown is my homemade pot breaks, things can't be that bad. I'll just have to use a non-DIY bowl or pot instead. Putting the set back behind us, it's onto the brew itself. With our kerna carved, the barley malted, herbs dried and yeast stick yeasty, it was time to bring it all together. At the end of the day, I told Kerry not to wait up as it was going to be a late one and I got on with not one, but with two brews over the evening. As we had more barley and herbs than there was capacity for in the kerna, I decided I'd also put on a modern brew as a comparison. Same ingredients, but using my personal all-in-one programmable domestic brewery. That means high levels of control, a boil phase, and a contemporary sanitised fermenter instead of just using a big pot or a bowl. I'm not going to take you through every single bit of the processes, as it took hours and hours. Instead, I'm going to run you through the highlights and take you back to your childhood at the same time. Do you remember, as a kid, those turn-the-page adventure books that came with a little cassette or CD that let you know when to move on to the next bit? Well, it'll be a bit like that. So, the first step was to prepare the barley. First, checking to see if the grains are ready to brew with or not. And the way you can tell is how much the shoot or acrospire, to give it the proper name, has grown inside the grain. 
If you gently slice one of the grains open and you split it in two with your fingernails, you can see the little shoot under the husk working its way up from where the roots come out to the other end of the grain. We wanted the majority of our grains to have acrospires that are between 75% and 100% the length of the grain, which they were. So, next step was to try and rub off all the rootlets that were now at least as long as the grain itself. I was prepared for a bit of a long job, so I just started to work through the batch one handful at a time, rubbing it between my hands to try and break off those roots. 20 minutes later, and it is quite clear that is not going to work. I've separated barely any roots at all, and I think it's because I'm not kilning or drying the barley, the rootlets remain quite soft and flexible, so they just don't go brittle and break off and rub together. Now, it's not ideal, but it's not a massive problem. I've read that having the roots in there can affect the flavour a little, but I'm not that worried, so we're just going to crack on with the crush. Now, normally, when you or your brewer crush malted barley, it would be hard, dry and brittle, so it would be put through a mill or a crusher. And these have knobbly rollers that are set at a particular distance from each other, so that as they turn, they pull in and crush the grain. Now, I don't have that option, partly because uh, I can't make myself a mill, um, but also if I did try and use one, I think I'd very quickly block it up with my squashed, sticky green malt. Instead, I went back to basics and I crushed it by hand, little by little, with a pestle and mortar. Jumping forward a couple of hours and with wrists aching, the grain was now ready for the next step, the mash. That point where we add hot water to the barley and let it sit there for at least an hour until we have our sugary wort ready for fermentation. So I put about a kilo of the crushed barley into the querna, which I raised up in front of my fireplace in the living room so I could hopefully stop it from cooling down too much once the water had reached 65 degrees. Now, those of you who are quick off the mark in working out what happened to my pot when it got hot will probably also be able to work out what would happen if I put the querna directly over a fire to heat up. That's right, we'll end up with lukewarm liquid, a lot of smoke and a badly charred log at best. Now instead, and because I quite clearly don't have the skills to make a pot that can go in a fire, I tried the ancient technique of hot stones. Basically, putting some stones or rocks in a fire to get hot and transferring them into the kerner to heat up the mash. We've established I'm no potter, but I'm also definitely no geologist. So, a couple of weeks ago, I emailed around and started to bother a few people who were, in the hope that I could find out if there were certain stones or rocks that I should or shouldn't use. I got a lot of really good advice, actually, about the types that I can find around me, and for the next few days, whenever I was out and about and saw what I thought was a rounded, smooth, quartzite stone, I borrowed it away to use in the brew. Now, one thing that was made really clear to me by just about everybody who offered their advice was the need to be very careful when I'm doing this. Exploding rocks is a thing, and is very possible when they reach the high temperatures in a fire. Bearing this in mind, I only gathered stones that didn't appear to have holes or cracks in, and... When it's time to heat them up, we're going to do so really, really slowly and gently. The volume of liquid we've got to heat up is actually pretty low. It's only about four or five litres, so we don't have to go crazy. And, of course, I popped on some goggles to stay safe. So, with the barley and water in the kernel ready to go, it was time to start heating it up. For about the past hour, I'd had a small fire going in my front garden, and for 45 minutes of that, I had the stones in there, slowly heating up. Now, when I first set the fire going and put the stones in, I wasn't sure how long I'd have to leave them in there, because remember, we don't need too much heat from them. But when I started to hear popping noises from the garden, I realised it was time to get them out, because that's, well, it's not ideal for safety, 
nor my sleeping neighbours, who really don't want to be woken up at midnight by what is effectively a thoroughly underwhelming firework display in my front garden. And as I went to go and get some, with uh, goggles, tongs and gauntlets on, uh, a slightly larger piece exploded off into my log store about 15 feet away, and I realised that yes, now was the time to tip out the fire and transport those stones into the kerner. Excitedly, I put the first of my stones in and watched it sink to the bottom, and you get this instant sizzle and a puff of steam come off the water as it goes in, and then a couple of the bigger stones just carried on rumbling as they sat on the grains under the water. It's an awesome noise, and I did my best to record it. I love that. So I got all of the stones into the kerner and then checked the temperature. It was just about at the mid 60s Celsius that we need to get those enzymes converting sugars, which is great, but I realized I now had a problem. Having tipped the little fire out and putting all of the hot stones in the water, we didn't have any left to keep adding to keep up the temperature. And it was quite clear that over the next 60 to 90 minutes, this was going to drop, which it did surprisingly quickly and to the point that I realized that if I wanted to keep the mash going I was going to need to take out a litre at a time, heat it up separately over the fire and then add it back in again. Now that's, that's not ideal but I didn't really have a choice. Fortunately though another problem I had noticed a little earlier had resolved itself. As I was adding water to the kerner I could see a small but continuous drip from the bottom of the log as it made its way through a small crack in the grain. Now this isn't a big deal if you've got a large volume of water, but when you've only got about four or five litres at best, that small drip over the course of an hour and a half could really start to eat into the final amount of liquid we have uh, ready for fermentation. However, fortunately, the hot water caused the wood to expand and after about five minutes or so, it sealed up the crack. While the main brew was sat now doing its thing in the kerner, I put the rest of the ingredients in that modern all-in-one unit that I mentioned earlier on. Oh, it is so much easier and quicker. The grains went in, I set it to 65 degrees, it beeped when it was ready, and then I switched on a pump which started circulating that hot water around and around. And the benefit of this is that the grain gets the water flowing through it and extracting as much of that sugar as possible. And the main difference between the ancient and the new? Well, whilst I'm sat here keeping an eye and stirring my log by the fire, I'm also keeping an eye on the other brew, the temperature, how much time it's got left to go, all from my phone, from another room. It, you know, it really couldn't be more different. I gave the kerner 90 minutes to mash to try and get those sugars out, whereas the modern brew was just 60 minutes. So I even had time to chuck in a bouquet of the meadowsweet, ground ivy and yarrow and set it to boil for 60 minutes before heading back to the fire to finish off the main brew. With the mash in the kerner hitting its 90 minute mark, it was time for the final step of the night. I scooped the wort out of the trough and into my sadly not clay bowl and waited for it to cool down to about 35 degrees centigrade. Now, I didn't put the herbs in straight away because I wanted the yeast to be added and hopefully get started because I had no idea if the dried yeast would work at all and I was a bit worried about the meadowsweet affecting it too. So I added in some of that honey that makes it a braggart, mixed it round, and then got the yeast stick and dried flakes and, and pretty much just chucked them in. I covered up the bowl with a piece of cloth to reduce the chance of dirt and dust getting in. And then that was it for the night. Just stoke up the fire to keep it all warm and start the cleanup. I'd have to admit I was a little bit worried as I poured it into the bowl. It smelled good and it smelled sweet, 
but it looked like I'd strained a pint of lager through an ashtray. It was basically the colour of dark storm cloud. And obviously that's come from the hot stones. As they've been heated up in the fire, they become blackened and covered in, I guess, soot or something similar from the flames. I had no idea what it would do to the flavour in the long run, but it's fair to say that if it stayed that colour, it's going to look less than appealing. The modern brew looked much more as expected. It went into the fermenter as sort of a pale yellow, a little like a light cloudy summer or pale ale. And now as far as sugar content, the log brew came out with a little less than the modern one. Now neither are that strong. If both ferment well, I can expect about 3.5% roughly for the log brew, maybe 4, 4.5% for the modern. I added fresh kvite to the modern brew so I can see if there is a difference or potentially a problem with our dried harvested yeast then put in about half a kilo of the honey. And then that was it for the second brew. By the time they were both tucked up by the fire, I'd cleaned the kitchen and made the house look a little less like a post-apocalyptic brew house. It was five in the morning, so time to get my head down and try and catch up on some sleep. And that was it then. Nine months of foraging, growing, preparing, building and brewing done. And short of keeping the fire going for three days, now out of our hands. We are now five days after the brew and it is time to see how it came out. Did the yeast stick actually provide any yeast so it could ferment? Did it come out drinkable? Did it come out nice? Well, after the brew night, I actually only got about two and a half hours sleep before my darling children bundled in and started a new day. But the good news was that by late morning, so just about six hours after the yeast stick and the flakes had gone in, it was bursting into life. And by the time it had been in for 12 hours, there was a thick grey foam completely covering the wort. By the time we reached 28 hours into the fermentation, there was at least an inch of yeast on the surface. Which, considering I only had three litres in a wide top bowl, is a testament to just how awesome this kvike yeast is. It was after about 24-28 hours as well that I took the dried herbs, that combination of a little bit of meadow sweet, a little bit of yarrow and a little bit of ground ivy and I put those in because I now felt confident the yeast was doing its job, was strong enough to thrive and that any preservative properties that the uh, herbs put with them wouldn't cause problems for the fermentation. The fresh yeast was doing equally well in the modern version and I didn't really notice a difference in the time taken to get going between the two. You really can dip a stick in a kvike fermentation dry it out and then chuck it into the next one. It is amazing. By the end of day three, the fermentation had finished and it was time to see if it had all been worth it. Can you brew a beer, ale, or in this case a braggart, using just the ingredients and equipment that is found in the local environment around you? Well, as I was about to pour the kernel brew out of the bowl and into a couple of glass bottles to see how it looked, I was more than a little worried that the answer may be no. Well, I can't at least. You see, the wort had gone into the bowl a few days earlier, a very dark, ashy grey colour, and was now covered in a thick layer of yeast with the wilted leaves of the herb sticking through. It looked like a complete mess, and I was struggling to see how anything drinkable was going to come from beneath all of that. I should have had more faith though, because as I poured it from the bowl, I was genuinely amazed at the colour. The grey was completely gone, leaving a light, straw-coloured liquid. It was still a little bit hazy, but nowhere near as cloudy as it was when it first went in. Now, my guess from looking at the yeast remaining in the fermentation bowl is that it was this that helped to clarify the braggart. You can clearly see the first yeast to bud and grow was a pretty manky, murky, dark grey, 
But as fresh yeast has come on later on in the fermentation, the colour gradually got lighter and lighter until it's the creamy white that you would expect. So, not only does the kvite come back to life from a stick, does the job cleanly in three days and is so vigorous that few other bugs can get a look in, but it's my suspicion that it also filters impurities and particles out as well. Just awesome stuff. Enough talking though. How did it taste, I hear you ask? Well, after putting the two big bottles out in the cold for a day and a night to help any unwanted particles settle out and to chill it, it was time to give it a try. Sadly, due to COVID restrictions, I'm not able to get Adrian or any other judges or friends in to help assess the finished article. So, it's just me, on a surprisingly sunny December morning, sitting outside in a big coat to find out if our creation had worked or not. On pouring, it was, as expected, still. You know, there's no real way of building up pressure or, or carbonation when stored or fermented in a bowl. It's definitely on the light side when it comes to strength and body. Uh, I think the early estimate of about 3.5% is probably about right. The aroma is a continuation of the smells that came out of the brew, really. I know green is not an appropriate description of a smell or a taste, but it does sum up the experience really well. The braggart is grassy, with, with cucumber clearly coming through. And it's not what I was expecting, but if I had to compare it to something else, it would be fresh cucumber water, but with a little floral note, I think from the meadowsweet and the herbs. On to the flavour then. Well... Those grassy cucumber flavours come through, but there's also a little bit of lemon citrus, a light smokiness, and a tiny bit of floral honey at the finish. None of the flavours dominate, though. In fact, there's a fairly consistent blend as you go from grassy all the way through to the honey. It's also pretty dry. I think those relatively limited sugars have been largely used up by the yeast, and what is left is actually pretty well balanced with the bitterness that's coming from those herbs. Again, I'm talking about quite subtle flavours, which also includes a slight tartness. I'm assuming that this is due to the brew never being boiled, so the ingredients may well have been carrying some wild yeast and bacteria into that fermentation. It's a very minor flavour, but it's definitely there, and I'd have to say, I quite like it. It makes for a surprisingly complex drink, and the combination of light green malt, smokiness and citrus acidity, it reminds me of modern commercial beers that include Earl Grey tea and lemon. It's absolutely, and I'm, I'm being totally honest, it's actually not too bad. In fact, I would actually say it's pretty good, and I quite happily finished the two glasses of it whilst giving it the first try. I know you've only got my word for it, but if it were rubbish, I promise you, I would tell you. I've certainly made far worse than this over the years, and if I'm honest, I've also judged far worse than this from experienced brewers too. I've got one bottle left, which I'll keep for the next two weeks until Christmas Day to see if it does keep well, or whether it's only good fresh. Looking back at that original question then, is it possible to make a beer using just the ingredients around you? Yes, yes, it totally is. The barley came from a combination of wild forage plants and those grown from seed. All of the herbs that provided bitterness, flavour and preservation came from the hedges and fields around me. The water is local spring water, and whilst the yeast isn't an original strain that I've captured and bought on over generations, I think it is much closer to the yeast we would have been using centuries ago in rural domestic brewing, and we've successfully shown that you can keep it dried just in your cupboard at home. I mean, I've read all about the fabled brewing sticks that are believed to have special, if not magical, properties, and with the right yeast at the start, it is totally possible to keep a culture to reuse again and again with no need to add anything new. Now, should you do it? Well, that is up to you. I've spent weeks and weeks making this bracket, and whilst it's been a lovely distraction from the events of 2020, it's certainly not an economically viable way of brewing. 
And that's not to say that most of the elements can't be explored and used. I'd really recommend to anyone listening that you experiment with the different ingredients, be that wild plants or funky yeast strain. I just wouldn't do it all at once. Considering how easily you can buy outstanding beer in most towns and most countries across the world, I would still say to support your local breweries and shops. It is nice to know, though, that even in the worst possible situation, I can brew using just what I've got around, which is handy, should we find ourselves waking up 4,000 years ago or when the zombie apocalypse finally takes hold. It would be rude to make out that the efforts of this year didn't involve a lot of support from other people. So I need to say a very big thank you to Martin Cornell, to Marin and Graham Dinley, Thomas O'Hagan, to Kerry and the Brewers Research and Education Fund. Without all of their help, I wouldn't have got this far and I certainly don't think that the braggart would have turned out the way it did. Now, this is the last episode of this year, but it's not the last one of the series. I had to postpone a couple of topics from this year and push them back into 2021. So, fingers crossed, I'll be back for one more final episode next year. Over the past two series, we've looked back at brewing in the past, explored the ingredients naturally found around us and compared this to modern brewing. To wrap things up, I'm going to look forward. What lies ahead for our pubs as they get back to what they do best after COVID? And how is the brewing industry changing to tackle climate change and the challenges around sustainability? We know where we've come from, but where are we heading? Anyway, that's more than enough talking for me for one day or even, I think, one year. If you want to see what the braggart looked like, uh, have a look at the website, beerwithben.co.uk, or the social media, which are all at Growing Beer. All that is left to say is thank you to you for your company as I've explored the natural world around me and sat up on those long nights by the fire. It has been genuinely enjoyable, and I hope you found it the same. Take care of yourself and those around you. With a bit of luck, we can all get back to enjoying a beer with friends in person very soon. Cheers. <laughs>